God's word says, And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so of the, do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while a bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, deserves new, for he says, The old is good. On a Sabbath day, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and he stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to them, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord, as we see these stories, as we see how they reflect the attitude of the religious at that time. Lord, may we see the joy that's found in Christ and not in legalism or the rules that can creep up, choking out life in you. Lord, give us eyes and hearts to see this morning. It's your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, sometimes enemies show up in the most surprising places. You know, so far we've been studying through Luke's gospel and crowds of people have wanted to come and see him. And yet, though many people have been wanting to see him, you may have noticed that there's starting to be this growing group of people who don't want Jesus around. Now, if you had never read the gospels before, I think your initial thought would be, well, those must be people who hate religion or hate God, who are opposed, want to get that out of our society. And yet, it's actually the very opposite. It is those who are the leaders of religion who are most opposed to Jesus. They're the ones who we saw back in chapter 5 when Jesus healed a paralytic and said, your sins are forgiven, were angry. They're the ones who, when Jesus went to be with tax collectors and sinners, thought that's not the way a religious person should ask, act. Well, this conflict has been simmering, but now today, in three different stories, we're going to see that the conflict isn't just simmering it goes up to a rolling boil because here they're going to come and the religious leaders are going to ask him three accusatory questions but then each time jesus is going to respond and ask them questions back that penetrate what is going on and we can summarize these three clashes in three questions if you have a bulletin you can see this on the back 
first in chapter 5, 33-39, we're going to see the issue is, has the groom come yet? Then in chapter 6, 1-5, the issue really is, who is the master? And then lastly, in verses 6-11 through of chapter 6, the question boils down to, did God give us the law for evil or for good? But the first issue in chapter 5, verse 33, is that they come and they're saying, well, look, John the Baptist's disciples fast, we fast, but your disciples and you don't fast. What's the deal? What's going on? Well, for their society, fasting was a very important deal. It's one of their three major religious practices. If you read Matthew 6 and Jesus corrects him, he, you may remember he says, when you pray, when you give alms, when you fast. Those were the three things they thought a religious person would do. And so they're wondering, well, why isn't Jesus and his disciples fasting? But the Pharisees and disciples of John were more than the normal fasters. In their society, they would fast once a year, the whole country would, the nation of Israel, because of the Day of Atonement. Or they would fast remembering the exile. But the Pharisees, they also fasted twice every single week. And so they're wondering, this is what religious people do. Jesus, you're claiming to be what religion is about. So why don't you fast? You know, imagine a different scenario. Imagine you hear of a new coffee shop in town. And you love coffee and everyone's raving about how it tastes. So you go and you want to find out how do they make their coffee? Where do they get their beans? How do they do the roasting? And so you go and you say, go to the barista and say, well, how do you do it? And they point back and there is a can of generic store brand pre-ground coffee and your old water drip coffee pot. And you're like, what? The, that's, not, that's scandalous. That's not how a real coffee lover makes coffee. You can't call this a real coffee shop and have from the jar generic drip coffee. That's not real coffee. Well, in a much greater way, that's what these people are saying. What? You can't say you're a religious person and you don't fast? Well, that's scandalous. All religious people fast. That's the exact opposite of what a real religious person would do, what a real God lover would do. So Jesus responds, though, and he gives them this illustration. He says, look, imagine a wedding, basically. Now, weddings we go to, you normally have the ceremony, and then there's a party afterwards. Maybe it'll go four, five, six hours, but then you go home. Weddings in their culture would last a whole week. So they're there, and for a whole week, they're celebrating and saying, look, while the groom is there, you're celebrating with the groom. This is wonderful. This is a great thing. We're so glad we're doing this. However, once the groom leaves, i.e. the wedding's over, then you're sad. You know, as Ecclesiastes says, there's a time to weep, time to laugh, time to mourn, a time to dance. While you're at the wedding, you shouldn't be mourning. That's the wrong emotion. When the wedding's over, oh, now we've got to return to normal life. The sadness comes. And Jesus uses this illustration because he's wanting them to tie in to what he already proclaimed in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, God said, the husband, the groom will come. Isaiah 54, 5-6 reads, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. Thus Jesus boldly is declaring here that he is God who's come to redeem them. He's come to be their groom. 
And thus, if they continue to fast while he's there, they are showing that they don't actually believe that he's their husband who has come for them. So it actually misses the point of who Jesus is to fast at this time. Because remember, why are the disciples of John fasting? John's main message was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So we need to be getting ourselves right. Except Jesus said, I'm the king who's come. Or the disciples of the Pharisees, they said, well, we got to fast so we can become right and pure before God. Except Jesus just showed them a couple stories before that he is the one who gives forgiveness so you can be made pure before God. So to continue to fast, to be pure before God, is to deny who Jesus is. And so Jesus is saying, your fasting is really inappropriate because I'm here, I'm the groom. Except then Jesus adds something in verse 35. He says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. In other words, the wedding is over, and that's when it is a time to mourn. A time to long for him to come back. Now, we don't miss people as much as we used to. With modern technology, as soon as someone leaves, you can send them a text. They can reply. As soon as they're there, you can talk to them on the phone. As soon as they're at a computer or now with phones, you can FaceTime or Skype. You can still see them face to face on the other side of the globe. But in prior generations, once they left, they were gone. There's no letters going around rapidly. There's no text. There's nothing. And there would be this aching for them to return. Now, many of you being military know this. When your spouse is deployed, the ache for them to come back, the longing for them to return. And that is what Jesus is saying we should have. In Hebrews chapter 9, he talks about those who are saved or those who eagerly wait for him to return. In Revelation 22, they cry out, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. You know, Because while the groom Jesus has come, he's also gone back. You know, we're kind of in this in-between time. The groom has come, Yes, and he promises, Matthew 20, 18, Lo, I'm with you always. He's with us. And yet, when we see him, we'll be with him face to face. So we long for him to return, though he's with us. And so there should even be this desire to fast now for the future wedding. The future wedding in heaven that it talks about the wedding feast of the Lamb. That we would want Jesus to return. Now, I don't know if you've ever fasted before, but it is a great spiritual discipline. And Keith and I would love to talk to you about it more if that's something you don't do. But here, we are longing, they're longing for Jesus to return when he goes, but now he's in their presence. So don't fast now, I'm here. Rejoice while I'm with you. It's like being sad about your spouse being deployed while they're still with you. Enjoy the time while they're still with you. Don't be weeping now. Well, Jesus then gives two illustrations to clarify what he's saying. And both of them involve something that is new being mixed with something that's old. In the first, he uses the illustration of a garment that's torn. Now, for some of us, this just goes over our heads because we actually buy garments that are torn on purpose. And if our garments are torn, we just go buy another one. But there was a day a long, long time ago when people would repair their garments. So if you can imagine that kind of world, this is what Jesus is talking about. So if you have a hole in your garment, well, you wouldn't go buy a new garment and cut the hole out. Well, yeah, you just run the new garment. It's got a hole now. 
And when you put it on the old one, it's not going to match perfectly. And then cloth always shrinks, and then it's going to tear the old one. So both the new and the old are ruined if you try to mix. Or wine skins and wine. Once you put the grapes that haven't fermented yet into the skin, the animal skin, as it ferments, gases would release. And the supple new wine skin would expand with the releasing gases. It would be fine. But if you put unfermented grapes into an old skin that had hardened and the gases release as it ferments, it's going to break because it's hardened and it's not able to expand of the gases. And so Jesus' point with both is you can't mix old and new. Well, what is the old and the new? Well, the old, I don't believe it. He's not talking about the Old Testament. He's talking to the Pharisees. He's talking about your way of thinking that the way you're right before God is doing all this religious deeds. He's saying, you can't mix me who has come to give you a perfect righteousness with wanting to do all these things to earn your righteousness. He's saying, if you mix the two, you'll ruin both. You'll ruin what you have and you'll ruin me. And Jesus even says in verse 39 that those who've drunk the old wine often don't even desire the new. Now he's not speaking universally because Nicodemus was a Pharisee and he desired the new and Paul was Saul's Pharisee and he desired the new. But in general, we like our legalistic rules. We like to be able to say, oh, I do X, Y, and Z and thus I'm really holy before God. And when Jesus comes and says, no, stop doing all this and just trust me. It's hard because we want to be able to add or contribute. And yet Jesus is saying you can't mix any religious system, any religious idea in me. You will actually ruin both. He's the new garment. He's the new wine that we must enjoy in and of itself. However, the Pharisees respond not with savoring him, but by asking more accusatory questions. That leads to the next section, Luke 6, 1-5. Who is the master? And this is another story. The disciples are walking through the fields and they're hungry. So they run their fingers through the grain and then they get the grain and they rub the kernel off so they can get to the seed and they eat it. And then the Pharisees, oh, these stories are really kind of funny. Where are the Pharisees? Are they like in the corn and like popping up? Ha ha, we got you. Like, what are you doing? Anyways, here they are. They're waiting. Well, we caught you reaping on the harvest on the Sabbath. And so there, they've caught Jesus' men. And yet Jesus is like, no, 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 you don't understand. Now we have to back up and understand where the Pharisees are coming from. You know, they knew the Old Testament law. And you've got to remember, the Pharisees thought the reason Israel is in such dire straits is we're not being faithful to God. We've got to keep all the laws. And so not only do we need to keep the laws, but we need to make sure people keep them. So they had 39 descriptions of what it meant to keep the Sabbath. And under those 39 descriptions, they had hundreds of little explanations of what those meant. And by their standards, Jesus' disciples were clearly sinning because they're reaping, they're threshing, they're winnowing, and they're preparing food. All things in their mind you shouldn't do. Now, just to be clear, the issue is not that they took grain. No one's accusing them of stealing. The law allowed them to do that. It's that they worked, quote-unquote, on the Sabbath. I think we have to pause here for a second. Because many of us are just like, they, they're just so ridiculous. I mean, laws were made to be broken, aren't they? I mean, who really cares if, even if they were doing this and they shouldn't, what's the big deal? You know, rules, eh, they're kind of made to be fudged. 
Except it's amazing how much people care about some rules. If there are any rules in life that really had no consequence at all, it would be the rules in sports. I mean, really, I mean, once the game's over, no one's life is on the line, unless you're a Colombian soccer player and kicking your own goal, but that's another story. No one's life's on the line. It's just a game. And yet, watch if a ref doesn't enforce a rule. Rage, fury, all of a sudden we care about the rules. You know, and yet here, I think it's important to note that Jesus is not saying, you know what, I don't care about the Sabbath. Jesus is not saying, you know what, rules don't matter. You know, even in this chapter, if you look at verse 46, Jesus is going to say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? In John chapter 14, he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So Jesus is not contradicting them because he doesn't care about obedience rather jesus is saying look you're obeying for the wrong reasons you have the wrong approach you have the wrong mindset to obeying god's rules thus jesus responds by asking them a question regarding an old testament story again notice jesus doesn't say look i'm bringing a new system sabbath doesn't matter y'all just don't understand nor does he appeal to some rationalization. Rather, he responds to their challenge of disobeying God's word by applying God's word. Jesus is showing them that, yes, obeying the law does matter. You're just misinterpreting it. So let me show you, Jesus says, from the Old Testament, from 1 Samuel 21, how this isn't actually wrong. And Jesus asked them, well, have you ever read? Now, this is a hypothetical question. They all would have read the story. Jesus is indicting them saying, you don't understand what that story means. And in the story, King David, who wasn't king at the time yet, he's fleeing from King Saul. He and his men are running and they don't have any food. And they get to the tabernacle. The temple wasn't in place yet. And in the tabernacle, they go and they talk to the priest and they tell him, hey, we need food. Well, the priest says, well, all we have is the bread from the table of showbread. What this was, was 12 loaves of bread that would be made every Sabbath and be put in the holy place. There were three things in there. There was the menorah, the lampstand, there was the altar of incense, and there was the bread. Every Sabbath, they would bake 12 loaves and put them in. And then at the next Sabbath, they would take the 12 old out, which the priest could then eat, and put 12 new ones in. Well, that's all they have. And of those 12, they've already eaten seven. So there's only five left. But what did the priest do? He gave them to David and his men. Basically, the priest said, the technical legalities of the law is not what this bread is about. The bread is to give life. So if you're here starving, I'm going to give you the bread. And so this kind of traps the Pharisees. Because if they say that was wrong, then they're accusing King David and the priests, which they'd never want to do. But if they say this is right, then they have to realize, oh, our rules that we have established for the Sabbath are incorrect. And basically what Jesus is wanting them to see is that the spirit of the law should at times override the letter of the law. And we understand this as well. Many of you have driven in cities where they don't even not only have a speed limit, they also have a speed minimum. They post on the highways, for example, you can't go lower than 45. Well, it would only be a fool who saw an accident and saw everyone stop going, 
law says I have to go 45. Here we go. Boom. I had to go 45. That's what the law said. Well, no, the, the spirit of that you can't drive lower than 45 is to keep everyone safe, to keep everyone moving. The spirit of the law is not, we can't think, and so we just have to keep creaning forward into each other. And so even in our society, we realize, yes, there's laws, but the laws have a spirit behind them. And the, here, it's important that Jesus' point is that, look, understand why God gave you the law. Now, we need to be clear, having the right motivation or spirit doesn't mean that you can go out and break any law. That's not Jesus' point. It's rather that if obeying the law means you have to do harm to God's image bearers, then you're not understanding why God gave you the law in the first place. In this case, David and his men were starving. They should be able to eat. My men, my disciples, we're walking, they're hungry. It's okay if we rub and toss them in our mouth. That's not the point of the Sabbath. And this story is really a warning, not just to them, but even to our legalistic and pharisaical hearts. You know, it's very easy to appeal to the letter of the law when we want something. Well, Mom, you said not to watch television. I wasn't watching television. I was watching Netflix on the computer. I didn't watch TV. My contract says I only have to work eight hours. My time's up. I'm gone. Now, it's interesting. A lot of people who like to appeal to letter of the law for their contracts, if their boss says y'all can go early, they don't also go, no, no, I got to stay the whole time. They're fine to obey the letter of the law when it benefits them, but when it doesn't, oh, that's okay. They're free, oh, no, no big deal. Or, you didn't say anything about picking up the clothes by the doorway. You said to clean my room. Those aren't my room. And in our society, we have to have lawyers upon lawyers, laws upon laws, trying to nail people to do what the law wants them to do because... We have to be forced. We don't want the spirit of the law to guide us. We want the law to have to nail us down. And this can be very dangerous. Paul Tripp writes about the seriousness of this in regards to parenting. He writes, We as parents need to be skilled at talking about the spirit of the law with our children. We need to talk about the heart issues behind the command. We need to show our children the difference between an inner purity and a pharisaic performance of duty. We need to see their legalism as an opportunity to talk about what it means to have a heart for God and a heart for doing what is right. As we point our children to the grandeur of the spirit of the law, they will say, I can't do this. I can't love. I can't give. I'm not a servant. Tripp then concludes, that will then give us the opportunity to show them the help that Christ can only give. So here in this conflict, Jesus wants the Pharisees to see that even the Old Testament showed that mercy and compassion, the spirit of the law, overrode, overruled the technical restrictions of the law. But it's more than that because you may have noticed in verse 5 that Jesus said, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus used that phrase in the story of the healing of the paralytic Son of Man where he's saying, I'm the representative human for all mankind and there he healed the paralytic which should have shown them look if he can heal then he must be god and if he's god then he's the lawgiver and if he's the lawgiver then he's the 
master of the law. And he can interpret his own laws. John MacArthur states this very well. He says, if a human priest could permit David to violate part of God's ceremonial law, how much more could the Son of God allow his disciples to violate unbiblical human traditions? You know, again, all these stories, Jesus is driving them to ask the question, who really is Jesus? If they admit that Jesus is the Son of God come in the flesh, then of course it makes sense for him to do this. But they don't want to believe. They don't want to repent. Rather, they continue to try and trap Jesus. Thus, they come with a third accusatory question. This is the last section, verses 6-11. to Really, is the law for evil or good? And here, what happens is Jesus walks in on the Sabbath, and he's in a synagogue, he's teaching, and he sees a man with a withered hand. His hand is unfunctioning in some way. And the Pharisees, what are they doing? Well, it says they're watching him. Now, the word watch is more like lurking or spying. They're like spies on the lookout. Again, ha how can we catch Jesus? You know, they, and the, you can hear them thinking almost, ah, we got Jesus this time. Here's someone who needs help. It's the Sabbath. Jesus is going to want to help him. This must be a bad person. He wants to help. And Jesus is going to help him. And so they think, we got him trapped. It's the Sabbath. He won't be able to stop himself from doing good. Except Jesus does something that really is fascinating. In verse 8, he says to the man, come and stand here. Now, stand here literally means come and stand in the middle of the room. You know, the Pharisees, they're all spying. They're thinking they've got to catch Jesus. So what does Jesus do? He turns all the lights on. He says, hey, everyone, pay attention. Here, come in the middle. I want everyone to see what I'm doing. He's saying, I have nothing to hide. Nothing that I'm doing needs to be spied on because I'm showing you what I'm doing. You know, this is really an application of Jesus' words in John 3 where Jesus said, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is right and true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Jesus is willing to say, what I'm doing is good. I don't have to hide. I don't have to say, hey, hey, come over here in the corner. Let me heal your hand. Jesus says, this is good to do on the Sabbath. Come, let me show everyone. If you have to do what you want to do in secret, it's revealing that it's not what you should be doing. But before Jesus heals, he again questions the Pharisees. He asks them a question about legality. He asks them, is it lawful to do good or evil, to save life or take a life? And the Pharisees are again stuck. Because if they say they should do good, it wouldn't that be horrible to say that, then they'd be condoning what Jesus is about to do. However, if they say you should do evil, well then it would readily be apparent that all of their laws and their system are not what God desires. They're not honoring God. Thus, they stay silent. Again, Jesus is applying, now this is in this is the future verse, but applying the principle of James 4.17, which says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. You know, we often think of evil as sin as doing something actively. You stole, 
You attacked someone. You did. Except God said his sin is not only doing things, it's when we don't do things that we should do. It's both. It's when we leave undone what should be done. And so Jesus is saying, look, here is this good thing that could be done. Let's do it. And so after looking around at the Pharisees who won't answer, he tells the man to stretch out his hand. Now this is really an audacious thing to say. Imagine what Jesus is saying to this man. Maybe you've experienced the cruel way we treat other people. And maybe there's someone in a wheelchair and other kids will tease them and say, hey, walk over here. Well, they can't. It's cruel. It's making fun of them for the thing they can't do. Well, this man has a withered hand and yet Jesus tells him to stretch it out. That's the one thing he can't do. And yet it's not cruel because Jesus does that to heal him. As he stretches out his hand, the sinews, the ligaments, the feeling all come back. Now, as we've noted in these other healings, Jesus didn't give an incantation. He didn't put on a magical hat. He didn't pull out a wand. He didn't go and pull out some ointment that no one else has known about, but he's brooded up. Jesus just speaks. Jesus' words have power to bring life. Life not only to withered hands, but also to withered hearts. And yet... How do the religious leaders respond? You know, just imagine you've known this person all their life. They have this horrible situation in a society that works with their hands. He has a withered hand. And this man is healed. You should be jumping up with joy. And yet the Pharisees are stomping in rage. Why? Because as William Lane writes, in their concern for legal detail, they'd forgotten the mercy and grace shown by God to man when he made the Sabbath. In the name of piety, they had become insensitive both to the purposes of God and the sufferings of men. So rather than rejoicing, they from this point start plotting how they can get rid of Jesus. If you read the parallel account in Mark, Mark tells that the Pharisees start meeting with the Herodians to get rid of Jesus. Now that's significant because the Pharisees wanted to make their society pure and distinct from the Gentiles, people like King Herod. Well, the Herodians are people who want to support Herod. So two groups that should hate each other say, we hate Jesus more than we hate this. And so they unite in their efforts to get Jesus. And again, though, we have to guard because these pharisaical attitudes can creep up in us. I've mentioned this story before, so some of you might remember it. But I was at a church once, and later on in the week, I was talking to one of the people in the church. And the woman said to me, do you know what everyone was talking about all week? No, I don't really know what y'all were talking about. So oh, this last Sunday, these two girls came in, and they sat, and they drank coffee through the whole service. We couldn't believe it in the sanctuary. <laughs> and I couldn't believe it either that people were talking about this all week. I knew who these two girls were, and I was glad that they wanted to come to church. Well, the next Sunday, the two girls didn't come to church. And so I followed up with my friend. I said, was anyone talking about the fact that they didn't come back? No, no one really mentioned it. You know, here is this being played out. 
we are happier, these people, if we have a group of people who show up and know you don't drink coffee, and you can drink coffee in here if you want, who know you don't drink coffee in this holy place, we're happier at that than two people who need Christ being in here. That makes us upset. Oh, but they don't show up. Oh, that, we don't really need to get upset about that. That's no big deal. You know, the same pharisaical attitude exists, and it can exist in us in other ways. You know, we can be quick to catch people when they say things wrong. That we want them to cross the line so we can point out how they aren't saying it right. You know, you don't have to spend much time online to realize there's people who, if they say anything slightly wrong theologically or politically or socially, they're going to jump on them and we're going to like a sarcastic meme or post it or share it and let them know how wrong they are because they didn't say that just right. Well, that's the pharisaical attitude of, we got you, you're wrong, rather than compassion. You know how many people wrote to that person in private and said, hey, maybe you should express that differently. You know, are we eager to catch people in their mistakes, you know, in their grammar, in their dress, in their decorum, in their life? Or do we want to do them good? You know, again, it's not that Jesus doesn't care about the rules, but he's filled first with mercy and compassion before he is with condemnation. But I think it's very significant. I want to point out again that who are these people who are despising Jesus? It's not people who, in outward appearance, hate God. It's the religious. They've dissected God's word so they can pull out various parts and apply them so they can sit in judgment and condemnation over other people's lives. You know, rather than using God's word to condemn others, we should really realize His word stands in condemnation of us. Now, if there's one person who could have stood up and said, hey, let me speak condemnation, it was Jesus. He could have gone to the middle of the room and said, hey, let me tell you how all of y'all are actually sinning. And yet he didn't speak words of condemnation first. He gave words of compassion. It's Jesus who gives new life. And he gives new life not just physically, but spiritually. He says, you don't need to come on your own. I will give you a righteousness that you may come to me. Yet these proud, self-made, legalistic Pharisees don't like the words of life. You know, it's very ironic. Because Jesus healed on the Sabbath, they now start planning on the Sabbath how to kill Jesus. You heal, so we're going to kill. You know, the exact thing they're saying they're trying to honor, they're breaking in their own actions. I really think stories like this are so important in our day and age because many people outside the church look in and go, the church is so hypocritical. They're such fakes. And I think Jesus would probably say, I agree. Not to every church, not to every Christian, but when people say that, it's sometimes helpful to go, Jesus might agree with you. Now again, I'm not trying to cast condemnation on every Christian in church, but we need to point out that the main group that hated Jesus was the religious people. They're the ones who killed him. And our friends who are questioning the church sometimes have very legitimate points that we need to note and go, yeah, you're right. And that's wrong that Christians act that way. That's wrong that I act that way at times. We need to follow Jesus and we don't follow him 
perfectly. In the late 1400s, the personal physician, the King Henry VII and then the Eighth, he was reading the Gospels in Greek. And when he read them, he said, Either this is not the Gospel, or we are not Christians. He realized that the way they were living was so counter to what Jesus was saying that it couldn't be the same thing. And so even this morning, the question is us to us is, are we living the life of the gospel, the life that Jesus is calling us to, or are we using God's word just to puff ourselves up, to make ourselves feel better so we can then look down and judge others? I think Jesus here is calling us to have the same compassion, the same arms of love that reach out, that don't first seek to condemn, but first seek to show his compassion to others. Let's pray. Lord, even now it's easy to condemn, oh, those stupid Pharisees. Lord, would you give us hearts that are quicker to forgive, hands that are quicker to open up in forgiveness than to close in judgment. Lord, as we look around, sadly, in our own lives and in many churches in the U.S., we do very much live pharisaical, self-righteous lives. Lord, would you forgive us individually and forgive the churches in our nation? Lord, would we actually be people who follow your book, who live humble lives of service, who don't look at ourselves and what we do for being any better, but continually point to your Son and what he did as our only hope and righteousness? It's in his name we pray. Amen.